Again. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the TalkDiplomacy.com podcast. My name is Ishan Busaretti, and here with me is Jacob Houston. Uh, hey, guys. It's nice to be back. Uh, uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, Ukraine and the current developments going on there. Um, we're going to be expressing some personal uh, opinions, uh, especially because this is a controversial issue. So just be wary of that. Right. Um, and we may extend into other aspects of uh, foreign policy as this is more of a uh, informal episode. It's going to be just more of a conversation. So a little bit of an experimentation. We'd like to hear what you guys have to say about that. Um, so I guess we'll just start off from the Ukraine conflict that is unfolding right now. Um, I bet some things have happened in the last hour that I'm not aware of. But <laughs> yeah, it's currently on 8.22 p.m. EST, and it's February 25th, 2022. I guess that's necessary to say that date because everything changes every single minute. With yeah. This conflict. I mean, it's literally a war happening right now. So... Yeah, I guess we'll start on what's what's been happening right now. Let's let's see. Let's check the news. Um, hmm. so I guess summing it up, I guess I should say, from what's happening is that on basically early Thursday morning over there in Ukraine slash Russia, uh, Russian forces invaded Ukraine finally, as I had predicted myself. Um, I thought that it would be a multi-directional offensive from many different er regions into Ukraine right. by Russian troops. And I actually ended up being correct. And it's actually the magnitude that was quite large. Um, summarizing the military uh, troops, how they've gone into Ukraine, the eastern sector, which is like the separatist regions, as, I, as we discussed in our previous podcast with the Lugansk and Donetsk, regions which have separated from Ukraine now being recognized by Russia officially as sovereign states. And these areas are being assisted by Russian troops and they're trying to push through the Ukrainian Eastern territory. There's been offensive towards Kharkiv, which I'm not sure if it's fallen. Uh, it, it, it seems that Kharkiv is almost taken. It's being taken soon. Um, there's an offensive towards Kiev, which has gone to the radioactive region of Chernobyl and has actually taken that region and possibly actually damaged the nuclear plant, which is very dangerous over there, um, with sources saying that there has been an increase in radioactive material levels. And this offensive has reached Kiev, and uh, there's currently a battle of Kiev going on to decide who will control this city. It's a very um, important battle, as it may actually stop the Russian momentum, at least in that area, for the time being and give Ukraine more time to deploy reserves and outnumber the Russians, or it could end up being seized and that would cripple the Ukrainian government. As yeah. the Rush, uh, Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky is still in Kiev on his own will um, as a last stand, essentially. And yeah, a lot of other things have happened, such as an amphibious assault in Odessa in southern Ukraine, uh, Crimea, of course, already being seized as an invasion of southern Ukraine from Crimea by armored units. And uh, currently what's happened is that there are lots of explosions happening in Kiev, and I don't think the main fighting has begun, but it may begun, begin soon. I know that in Kharkiv, uh, there's been some major, uh, some major combat, some battles uh, 
I know that there's been, uh, I guess the Ukrainian defense ministry reported that more than 1000 Russian servicemen have been killed so far. Um, but, uh, according to, uh, Russia, there's been no real casualties at all. Um, I mean, and the same thing with Ukraine saying that they have little, uh, I mean, minor casualties to their defense forces. Um, but yeah, like, uh, like Isan said, um, just really, you know, with their, you know, having like a more of like a pronged attack on Ukraine, not just coming through in one direction, just a full, almost like a full uh, Hannibal like uh, uh, defense uh, system, just going, you know, you have with, uh, like Isan said, your amphibious attacks. Um, but really, I think. Also, you would need to look back on the history of the real of just Ukraine and Russia, which we did talk about in an earlier podcast. Um, but really just the history of Russia after the Soviet Union collapsed, which, of course, is very just lots of moving pieces, just really controversial. But I just really think that I guess the way NATO and the whole system kind of dealt with Russia after that entire conflict was admittedly just really flawed i just think if they had been a little more open and a bit more cordial you would have been i think there would have been an easier way to really talk with russia i mean especially through these times i mean you have putin um who is an ex-kgb agent um and for those who don't know uh what K- who, what the kgb is um the former uh, Russian uh, uh, intelligence, intelligence agency. And really, I just, Putin really just is like, okay, guys, look, you know, we got, there's like so many, uh, okay, okay, wait, stop, 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 stop. No. Okay. Anyway. Okay. So, yeah, there's an intelligence agency and he, he was part of that. And that has been extremely influential. But anyway, so actually one interesting thing is that just recently there has been fighting in the south of Kiev, which makes no sense because the Russian assault should be to the north, west, and east. Some more Russian troops have snuck out in the rear of the city, which I think is going to not, basically the encirclement. This is like a medieval siege. Actually, it's not. This is more resembling pocketing of troops, right? Yeah, I just... Uh... I mean, it, it's it's a evolving conflict. Um, actually, Ukraine announced that it is willing to uh, negotiate, and that's actually quite interesting because that means that Ukraine could actually make a peace with Russia that could be adverse against Ukraine, but at the same time. I think Russia might just reject it and keep fighting. So, yeah, I think really, I mean, if you look at NATO, 
Um, you have member states such as like Poland, Estonia, um, and Lithuania basically triggering NATO Article 4, basically to launch consultations within the alliance over Russia's attack on Ukraine. And basically, you even had, I mean, in, in the article, in Article 4 of uh, NATO, basically, the parties will consult basically together whenever in the opinion of like basically any of them. The territorial the territorial integrity i mean political independence or security of really any parties is threatened and if you look at the region especially eastern europe i mean you have many nato members so with russia um attacking ukraine that of course rustles some feathers sends some vibration throughout the region and really i mean if you look back into the history of it article four has only been invoked on four occasions, uh, which was once in 2015 to basically uh -huh. inform the alliance of its response to terrorist attacks in the countries, hmm. and 2012 uh, when a Turkish warplane was shot over Syria, and in 2003 when uh, the alliance when it asked for alliance to help protect Turkish uh, citizens from any spillover from basically the war in Iraq. So basically, um, especially you have Poland basically invoking Article 4 in 2014, which is connected to Russia um, annexing Crimea. Yeah, check out our, our previous podcast um, episode, uh, one on that topic. We talk more about that. Okay, continue, please. Yeah. Um, and also, just, just to clear some things up, Article 4 is totally different from Article 5, which is basically like a next step. Article 5 basically states that, uh, which is basically, basically, it basically states that an alliance declaration that an attack against one member is considered an attack against all. And of course, that would lead to some dire consequences. Um, and even you see uh, Russia basically, I mean, Putin especially, um, in his address, I mean, you see him basically saying, you know, trying to avoid, I mean, not avoid, but really just kind of bypass and try to, you know, run around the obstacles faced with him, with NATO. I mean, even him saying our actions are basically self-defense against really threats. And he basically said that Moscow really doesn't really have any plans to really occupy Ukraine. Putin described it as basically like a really special military operation. Um, and also, he said that Russians were being subject to genocide in Ukraine, um, which Ukraine has strenuously denied. Um, oh, yeah. And that he basically lashed out a little more broadly that basically NATO supports Ukrainian neo-Nazis, um, which he says that that is really the cause for their really self-defense efforts. And if you can look at it, Ukraine becoming part of NATO would be like Canada becoming part of the Warsaw Pact um, back in back like, Not Cold exactly, War. but like, yeah, basically. And really, I mean, if you, if, you could, if you could take the perspective of the United States, if faced with, I guess, Canada or Mexico, or I mean, even taking the Cuban Missile Crisis, you can see, I can, you can, you can maybe count, count, see Putin's perspective on the whole issue of Ukraine. Um, 
but really, I mean, you, you can see him basically saying that he doesn't really uh, want to really uh, cause any real harm to Ukrainian people. I mean, at least that's what he's been saying. And uh, he basically says, you know, I urge you to lay down your weapons and basically go home. And basically he says that, I mean, Russia basically has no choice but to defend itself. Exactly. Um, and really, you see with the Kremlin basically dismissing really any real hope of real negotiation after this. I mean, you do see Russia wanting to open up. I mean, his, the foreign minister of Russia wanting to open up uh, talks with the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also see them basically saying, uh, I mean, even with the Kremlin saying that it's done with uh, and it's done and it's basically dismissed um, anything uh, that NATO has always said against Russia during this uh, attack on Ukraine as basically Western hysterics. Um, and you can also see that uh, Putin also said whoever um, and I quote. Whoever tries to interfere with us and even more so to create threats for our country, for our people, should know that Russia's response will be immediate and will lead you to such consequences that you have never experienced in your history. Even looking at that quote, you can see the real seriousness of the entire issue. Um, So uh, he even said that all necessary decisions in the attack have been regarded. Um, And at the end of his real uh, address to Russia, he even said, that I hope uh, that I've been heard. And really the whole thing with him um, and earlier uh, with his meeting with French uh, leader Emmanuel Macron, basically saying, you know, I don't feel like NATO or, you know, the Western countries are really listening to me. Um, so I'm going to result to drastic measures to basically say, okay, Look at this, you know, I'm I'm not playing anymore type of attitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. That's like I find it quite um it's it's really crazy about like how NATO thought to integrate. Actually, let's get into how like Putin's actually kind of used possible what he sees as provocations to justify his invasion. I mean, like, as you said, he's saying it's all defensive, everything's defensive. There's been a genocide, there are neo-Nazis, which I find to be, I don't, I can't even believe he said that. Like, that's crazy. I mean, like, that might even be a mistranslation. Who knows? I mean, like, if he said that, though, which I find he, since everyone's reporting it, it's quite likely he did say that. I mean, he's accusing a Jew of being a neo-Nazi. In this yeah, man, pretty, this man, direct ancestors died in the Holocaust, and his other great grandfather, <laughs> I think, fought for the Red Army against the Nazis. So yeah, yeah. I mean, his first language is literally Russian, like Volodymyr Zelensky. His first language, <laughs> yeah. is Russian. He, his second language is Ukrainian. I mean, like he's a, a, absolutely Ukrainian, of course, but I mean, like. He understands people, I believe. And I don't think he's a neo-Nazi at all. Like, I mean, that's just absurd. I feel like he almost made that comment to throw people off and just, like, distract. Yeah, just I to mean, try like, to justify what he's doing. I know. Yeah. I mean, just, like, genocide. Genocide. I mean, like, I mean, we're not entirely sure. We can't trust everything the media says, of course. But, like, there may have been some ethnic 
tension between Ukrainians and Russians. Maybe Russians felt that they were being neglected. Their language rights, they felt maybe were not being restored. Um, but honestly, I feel like when they were protesting against the uh, regime, the, I mean, not the regime, I mean, the Ukrainian legitimate government, of course, I think there was some... There's a strange response from the Ukrainian government because everyone really just burned into violence really quickly, which they failed to prevent. Um, and interestingly, um, a a uh, there there's been lots of debate in Ukraine over the language, and. Uh, Russian is recognized as a language of a national minority, but as as well as other languages, I believe. But uh, mm-hmm. I I think there's some been some debate with some factions proposing to just remove Russian, and yeah. and um, in fact, Ukrainian is the only official country-wide language and um according to wikipedia which we can't trust entirely but a 2012 law called the law on the principles of the state language policy gave the status of regional language to russian and other minority languages it allowed the use of minority languages in court schools and other government institutions in areas of ukraine where the national minorities exceed 10 percent of the population so yeah that was used mostly in southern and eastern regions where there's a lot of Russians, and even the majority of Russians, where most of these protests have occurred. Um, and three areas did that for Hungarian, Moldovan, and Romanian. But Ukrainian was the only nationally used language. And uh, the introduction of the law was supported by the governing party of regions. And uh, this is a pro-Russian party. And it was the biggest party from 2006 to 2014. And is opposed by the opposition parties. Yeah. So basically, the opposition, which ended up coming to power after 2014 with all the Euromaidan protests and everything, um, ousting the president, the pro-Russian president or neutral president, depending on how you look at it. Uh, these 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 parties they opposed, they opposed the these this special treatment of minority languages. So these parties supposed that. The law undermined and supplanted the role of the Ukrainian language and violated Article 10 of the Ukrainian Constitution. So that's that's I think where stuff broke down, which I don't think we discussed as well in our previous podcast. Where, in fact, I think it was a lot with this language policy, with the 2014 government being overthrown. You see, like this government was pro-Russian, so I think it appeased Russian rights and it it definitely represented them. But then the opposition simply to oppose that party opposed those provisions. And I think that angered the Russian citizens of Ukraine and made them really feel like they were just not belonging in this country, like they weren't respecting them. I think they feared, they feared that that this would lead to ethnic cleansing, assimilative policies and all these types of things, degradation of their culture and heritage. And I think maybe yeah. the Russian media played on this and tried to influence them into saying like, hey, maybe you should like protest, revolt and all these things. And I think that eventually developed into a violent conflict with the Ukrainian government didn't respond to properly, I believe. And that really caused 
um, that really caused even more conflict. And in April 2019, the Ukrainian parliament voted a new law on provision yeah. of the functioning of the Ukrainian language as the state language. And on 16th of June 2019, the law entered into force. So this has been this constant removal of Russian language rights or just strengthening of the Ukrainian position, which I think is a more pro-Ukrainian position, which has made these minorities angry. And I think that this, see, I think the issue is that why did Russians in Ukraine come to affiliate with the Russian state, the Russian Federation, is because the, the Ukrainian political parties, depending on whether they're pro-Russian, like pro-Russian Federation, like pro-Putin or anti-Putin, they decided that that is a reason why they should either be pro-Russian rights or anti-Russian rights, with the pro-Putinist faction wanting to support Russian rights to appease Putin, whereas the faction against them believe that they should immediately think in the opposite direction to oppose Putin. So that kind of the Ukrainians started affiliating these this minority Russian minority population with the state of Russia. And that caused that kind of like pushed them to actually affiliate with the Russian state and now consider to, you know, have independence. And then because of Donetsk and Luhansk revolting, that's kind of given Putin an excuse because see, Ukraine has recaptured half of the territory of those areas. I mean, not any longer, of course. I mean, <laughs> they've lost yeah. it. But <laughs> yeah. prior to Thursday, they controlled half of it. So Putin kind of used it as an excuse saying that you're, you're attacking them still. Yeah. So we're going to attack you. And now this multi-directional assault kind of broke out and everything's breaking down. Yeah. And I just really think, I mean, taking just an outsider's look into the entire situation, um, apart really from... I mean, really look at NATO's perspective on this, especially concerning sanctions. I mean, you even see, I mean, really, despite, I mean, with the more sanctions being imposed on Russia, it's really seeming like it's just not making some other sanctions that are being imposed now. I mean, as, I mean, really, in, 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 in out, with an outsider's view into the situation, just really effective with the whole situation. I mean, you see, uh, I mean, sanctions are really growing more common. And with that, I mean, they're really less effective. So, I mean, the question really is, I mean, why, I mean, does the U.S. and other countries, I mean, keep, you know, keep reaching for them? Um, and you see even see what Biden basically saying, you know, this aggression from Russia can go unanswered. That's why we're doing all the, putting all these sanctions. Um, and then you even see the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States basically saying, you know, uh, with their sanctions, basically saying that we're going to uh, withdraw uh, uh, trade, trying China, China really, really isolate Russia economically. Uh, but really, Putin doesn't seem to be deterred by this. And you know, what, you know what, let's, let's talk about one thing. One thing he's not deterred by. How about let's talk about the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> yeah, that that that's certainly something. Yeah, how about you? How about you, you see about that? You see, you see that. Well, what I, what I happened just, with the Eurovision Song Contest? How about you explain that? I mean, so what happened was, I mean, you have Putin and Russia being basically excluded from. I mean, you see Formula One races and their race in Russia, which I think it was going to be Sochi this year, but that got canceled because oh. You know, we're not we're not going to do that. Any we're not going to be 
we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna race in Russia because of the conflict. And then of course, like he saw it said, the Eurovision Song Contest. Like Putin's basically looking at that like is it like like basically like is that a joke? Like, are you joking with me? I find I mean, it actually kind of com- comic at this point. It's kind of comic. Yeah, it's it's comedic at this point. They banned Russia because they're like, okay, so the citizens work hard to participate in this contest. How about let's ban them so that they pressure the government with their influence I mean, and, and even like, status? I mean, yeah, and even like what Isan had said, being like telling basically a uh, basically a, tw- a thirty or uh, twenty five or thirty year old basically like. We're not going to invite you to our little birthday party. This is what so I like, mentioned. This is like the next. And a matter of fact, you guys can't come to the next 30 birthday parties. Okay. Yeah. If you first, keep first doing what you're the doing. First one this year, and then it's next year, and then the next year, the five, 10, maybe all of them. And even if you say all of them, Putin is just like brushing it up. He's just like, ah, whatever. I mean, of course, it's probably going to inflict the population more than declining some. Yeah, it's, 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 especially, it's gonna it's gonna affect it's gonna affect a lot of people. But Putin really, with his mindset right now, I don't think he really. He's like, do you think I care? Yeah, the the, the adult like, do you man think I care? rejecting the adult man reacting to you not inviting him to your birthday party is his mindset. It's regardless of the effect. That's his mindset. Yeah. Like, he does not care. They're freezing his assets everywhere. He doesn't care. Like he's just like, okay, whatever. Take my money. I want my. I mean, yeah. And I mean, even looking at sanctions. I mean, even with them emerging in 20th century Europe. I mean, after World War One, basically created after World War One, and you saw what happened with the League of Nations after World War One and to the lead up to World War Two. That was just a total disaster. And then you see sanctions now. I mean, even with Nicholas Mulder, um, basically a Cornell University history professor who basically has done a lot of research, groundbreaking research into imposing new sanctions, uh, even being like, uh, you know, he says one of the reasons why US, the U.S. Uh, and other Western countries have been doing, have, have basically, uh, you know, have been imposing sanctions is because, of course, the U.S. is exhausted at this point. I mean, you have Afghanistan, which two trillion dollars, twenty years. You've had several. You've had many U.S. soldiers losing their lives in that war. Then it and now you have Russia, and now you have Russia to deal with. Yeah, it's it's a shame of repeating Vietnam. Also, like it's just it's just too it's much. just it just really it. The U.S. basically at this point is like, what's next? Like guys, what the crap is next? Like, like what's happening next? Are, are, I mean, and to be honest, I just think really foreign policy, in terms of the U.S. right now, especially, okay. it's just been it's it's had some real mixed results. Um, I mean, you see with Russia invading Ukraine, um, and basically them being like, you know what, we kind of have our hands tied behind our backs. The only thing we can really do right now is just impose sanctions, which. Of course, I mean, even seeing with the Eurovision Song Contest, I mean, it's kind of comedic. I mean, Putin is basically just, I mean, laughing it off. I mean, economically, of course, just putting a giant dent into Russia's economy. But considering this, the heavy sanctions imposed on him after he annexed Crimea, he's like, you know what? 
we're just going to do it. You know, we're just going to do it. You know, we we face worse, but if they bring in worse, then we're going to have to deal with it. But right now, really, like this is being brutal. This is he's brutal. He's brutal. Ruthless response to the sanctions are more like, okay, I see you. You're trying to um, hurt my people so that it hurts my cred. And then they will they will try to protest against me and that will pressure me and everything. But then his response is like, okay, then I'll yeah. just let them suffer. And then you can be convinced by them suffering to stop sanctioning me because I'm not changing what I'm doing and they probably want to eat some food. So how about you like not sanction them? And I think it's yeah. driving the point like, we're not actually going to get anything out of sanctioning him. We might break down his war effort, but the citizens are going to suffer and yeah. he's not going to suffer. I mean, he's, he, he, he doesn't, he cares. I mean, but his response has been like, me giving in at, in any way is just going to show that your sanctions are affected. Exactly. It's the same way that the U.S. is like us giving in to you invading Ukraine is going to convince other countries to be aggressive, such as China with Taiwan or something like that, which is what Putin is saying with sanctions. If I bow, bow down to your sanctions, then then you're just going to sanction me more in the future for like anything. Yeah. And I really think on top of that, on top of the sanctions um, being a problem, you got natural gas. I mean, oh, yeah. and you have basically Europe basically being rely- relying on Russia's, uh, basically Russia's gas. Yeah, how about you expand on the Germany? And, uh, yeah, really just comes into just the war in Ukraine. And even if you look at Germany, um, you know, former Prime Minister of Germany, Angela Merkel, was like looking at the Fukushima uh, nuclear uh, disaster, uh, you know, and she was like, you know what, we don't want to bring most of our power, you know, I mean, even the lights turning on from nuclear power plants, because we do not want to repeat a Fukushima, or for example, Chernobyl, okay, oh, yeah. but so that's why we're going to get most like, at least, I mean, and even if you look at the statistics here, I mean, 40% of Europe's natural gas is supplied from by Russia. Yeah. So I think Germany is really like, okay, guys, you know, everybody just kind of calm down. I mean, we, we get most of our natural gas from Russia. I mean, if they cut all this crap off, that's gonna be that's gonna lead to some problems. Okay. I mean, and you some, see some even, small problems. Yeah. I mean, Minor issues. See, I mean, I mean, you, you can kind of see that, I mean, in terms of Germany. I mean, looking at the whole thing, no country uh, buys more natural gas from Russia than Germany, which basically depends on the fuel to help heat homes in the winter. Okay, that's very, very important. And to operate factories. Economically, just just a total cutoff would be that that, that would hurt. Okay. And just really, I mean, if you see... uh, uh, and you see that uh, the new prime minister of Germany, Olaf Scholz, yeah, uh, basically, yeah. <laughs> basically taking a real step. I mean, uh, saying that the government was basically postponing certification of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia, basically saying that, basically telling Moscow, you know, these actions won't remain without consequences. That's a major step. Um, and then you see... 
the German ambassador to the U.S. Uh, basically saying that uh, the pipeline has never been operational, so it won't immediately affect the development of gas prices. But even without looking at Germany through context, you see the other countries in Europe which uh, rely on Russian gas. Right. You see the Czech Republic, Latvia, Italy, Greece, Lithuania, Romania, Poland, Germany, down the whole, down the entire list, even the United Kingdom, even though it receives at least 6.7%, that's still bringing in uh, at least a substantial, not, not as substantial as Germany, but an amount that's manageable at least. And you even see uh, uh, Britain with their uh, golden rule, uh, considering uh, uh, the government basically spending uh, a fiscal policy, basically that uh, the government will only increase its borrowing um, from Russia, basically to order in order to invest in projects that will pay off in the future. Which really, in, in, in terms of all of this, if you look at it in context, looking at the golden rule, uh, even with the UK. Uh, it's kind of locked the, uh, Britain in a very, very kind of not in, not in a horrible situation, but a situation where it's kind of hard to find really leeway to do any more action than it is doing now with sanctions. Um, basically saying that the government will basically only will borrow only to invest, which, yeah. of course, would mean. Being that Russia, if, if there's ever a real conflict or Putin decides to cut off the gas to the, UK, to the UK, of course, that may not affect the homes in uh, Britain right now or the factories, but the economy would take a big hit. Of course, the economy would recover, but during that time, of course, that would, that, that would hurt. I mean, you can see that. Um, and really... You have basically most of the in Eastern Europe um, and even Central Europe. I mean, considering we've already talked about Germany. Yeah. Just really the Soviet. I mean, all the um, the former Soviet states um, that were part of the Warsaw Pact basically are 100 percent reliant or close to 100 percent reliant on Russia for significant natural gas. needs. So they're looking at this conflict like. Guys, we need to be careful here. Okay, we cannot. There, 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 we need to have a calculated look at this. We cannot rush into anything. We cannot rush into any decisions. We need to look at this because this could have effects on our country and the uh, the well being of our people. Um. So, Sean, do you have anything else to say on that? Yeah, I mean, like thinking back to the conflict itself, um, just recently. It seems that Russian troops have crossed the suburbs of Kiev, and at this is like an eight fifty nine EST. Um, it, it it appears they're going to enter the main parts of the cities very soon. They've captured the suburbs pretty much from the north, west, south, and east. So it looks like they're using an encirclement tactic, so that no one can escape. Um. And the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, 
who has been thrust into this role of like a hero at this point. He he has um, recorded a viral video on Facebook saying, um, good evening, everyone. Um, and he mentioned the names of all of the different people, the government of Ukraine, prime minister. Um, he says leader of the faction is here. Head of the president's administration is here. Prime minister is here. Um, advisor to the head of the president's office is here. And then finally, he says, the president is here, which is pointing to himself. And he says, we are all here. Our military are here. Citizens and society are here. We are all here defending our independence, our state, and will remain so. Glory to our defenders. Glory to our women defenders, he says. And then Slav, Slava Ukraini, or glory to Ukraine. And he, he, this is this is remarkable. I mean, like, he's almost pulling a Constantine the um he was almost pulling a constantine the uh the eleventh right here you know sacrifice against the ottomans in constantinople i mean that's almost what he's doing like he's just exposing himself in the open on the streets of kiev yeah. he's just like i'm here i'm ready to fight i mean mm-hmm. many previous presidents of of ukraine um the the um uh, the president that was overthrown in 2014, his name, what's his name? His name is, uh, uh, no, it's not coming to the top of my head. Give me one second. Uh, let me think. What was his name? His name was, yeah, his, his name is, I think it was, it was Viktor Yanukov. Yanukovych, I believe his name was. Uh, let me have a look at it. I think I think that was his name. Um, uh, um it is. It yeah, is, Victor Yanukovych. No, 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 Poroshenko. No, no, no. It wasn't Victor Yushchenko. Actually, the guy who I'm I'm talking about. No, it's not the one who was overthrown in 2014. It's. Um, Petro Poroshenko, who was defeated by one-time politician Volodymyr Zelensky, he has appeared on the streets with a AK-47, and he has vowed to fight the Russians with his own hands, saying that Putin is mad and crazy, yeah. and that he the Ukraine will never fall. So yeah. you have him on the streets, you have the mayor of of Kiev saying that he's going to join the soldiers himself. You have Volodymyr Zelensky who is literally right. Yeah. And then, of course, you even have civilians. I mean, civilians basically arming themselves with assault rifles. And you can even see uh, Ukraine's arming themselves. Actually, the government themselves, they're just throwing throwing out guns through this. Yeah, I mean, you you see them armed with assault rifles. Of course, you don't think that they could have. Yeah, of I mean, course. Least, I mean, like this uh, is this is a new level of warfare at this point. I, it's crazy. Yeah. The civilians are fighting. The mayor is fighting. The president and, and, and you fighting. can see what Zelensky has been doing. I mean, even banning all able men from leaving the country. I mean, I think it was eighteen to sixty-five. If you're in that age range, like they're old men fighting. You cannot. Well. Yes, you cannot. You cannot leave. Only women and children can leave. And that really, even with that, even blocked in, Russia, it's, it, I think with Poon's advance, of course, 
you have Ukraine, you know, kind of at least slowing the advance a little bit. But bit, I mean, yeah. you even see, you even see with fighting, of course, like Ishan said, in Kiev, in Kharkiv, brutal fighting in Kharkiv right now. Um, I remember uh, the Russians and the Ukrainians are fighting over a bridge in a Kharkiv as we speak right now. Um, and uh, just, just brutal fighting. Uh, and you even have, like Isan said, civilians fighting in that conflict. Um, just really, I think if Zelensky's message is basically rallying Ukrainians together in like really a nationalistic identity, and basically saying, we won't let anybody attack our home. Right. I don't know. I, it's it's an interesting conflict because I think the only thing similar to this is like the Finnish kind of conflict, the Rus- the Soviet-Finnish war, the Winter War, where the Finnish lost a lot of land to Russia, but they're able to stall them eventually and defend their sovereignty. I think if if the Ukrainian forces being bolstered by civilians and all these popular figures are able to stop Russia and Kiev, which I think the chances are bleak, but if they manage to do it, this could actually reverse the Russian advance and somehow maybe make it into a more truncated conflict, possibly um, force Russia to accept a peace where these majority Russian areas are ceded, but Ukraine is defended. I mean, even if that happens, I think that Zelensky will definitely become a hero for generations in the future. Just not in Ukraine, like around the world for a president yeah. risk everything to defend his country. I mean, like, this is very respectable. I mean, and there's already he, war heroes being made. I mean, an uncredited Ukrainian uh, fighter jet pilot has mounted six kills on Russian uh, forces in the air, and he is becoming a legend already. So this is like a war unfolding like no other in recent history. I think this is going to have a lot of repercussions it's an evolving conflict, and I really, I mean, I don't want to say I can't wait to see what happens, but, like, really, it's an interesting conflict yeah. different outcomes. And hopefully, I hope the Ukrainians and Russians are able to reach a peace which is, uh, which is fine for both of them, that they can kind of live in peace with. I just hope that Ukraine can find a peace where Russia now has no longer in the future has an excuse to attack them by any means that that um they they won't they won't even attempt to do that they'll have no reason i hope at least yeah it ha- if it has to that ukraine staying neutral is able to work with both russia and the eu to help its citizens prosper um i think an interesting part of the conflict is possibly putin might work his forces over to moldova and annex transnistria which is a pro-russian vision of moldova populated by russians and ukrainians that has requested to join Russia many times. It split off of Moldova when Moldova wanted to join Romania after the Soviet Union collapsed. This area, these people in this area didn't want to be dominated by Romanians or Romanian Moldovans. So you kind of separated. Um, they've asked to join Russia many yeah. times. Putin has said no every time because of proximity. Maybe he might annex them, but I don't know. I really just think that um, yeah. a little bit from the more lighthearted uh, tone of the conversation i think that it's really serious for world politics that ukrainians and russians are able to find a peace where they can really live together in some sort of relationship that can benefit both of them i mean i feel that ukrainians should also understand that they can partner with russia they can work with them peacefully they shouldn't be averse to them which i think they do understand and they should continue to do so i think they're 
Russian government and people should also um, understand that. And I think the EU should also understand that Ukraine can is definitely going to need to have a partnership with Russia in the future to, to resolve conflicts and promote peace and that they should work with Ukraine alongside Russia, really. Yeah. So I think that hopefully a peace can occur and I hope that this peace could result from Ukraine defending Kiev and then forcing Russia to accept a peace, an armistice. But I don't know what's going to happen. I predict that, I mean, I'd say the chances are high that the Russian forces are going to win, although I don't necessarily want them to, of course. Um, Possibly Transnistria could be annexed. And I feel that there might be another assault launched from the rear in the Western, from the Western part of Belarus. But as it stands, that's the conflict. And that's really what we think about that. So I thank all of you uh, listeners for listening to this podcast. Um, I hope you like this more um, informal tone, I guess, uh, reflecting on contemporary unfolding events, literally as they're happening. And it's really a one once a t- one in a lifetime opportunity. I, I hope it's a one in a lifetime opportunity. Of course, I don't want something yeah, happening I mean, again. Yeah, but yeah. So I'd like to I thank mean, even, all of you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Thank you all for coming. I mean, even elaborating on Ishan's point, this situation very controversial. Many moving parts. Just the world at this time right now, very uh, tentatious. Um, lots of tension everywhere. I just hope, like Isan said, there can be some aspect of just a peaceful resolution to this conflict and really that both sides can do something that, you know, really is beneficial to both parties and that Ukraine can understand Russia's stance on the issue and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, yeah, and I hope we can, the world can learn from this and especially U.S. foreign policy so that we can be more prepared in the future if China does indeed, as rumored, invade Taiwan very soon in the next uh, coming months, years, so and so. Um, I hope we can learn from this. Just not just Ukraine, Russia, like the whole world. I hope we can learn from this as civilians. Um, see what that, we yeah. can do to pressure a government. Um, make sure that they're voicing our opinions, and we voice our own opinions. So I think it's all really about that. You know that talking has a role in diplomacy. See what I did there, and huh. yeah. Okay then. Thank you. All Thank you all for coming. Yeah. Um, Remember to tune in next time. Maybe we might be talking about Ukraine again. Maybe we may not. Who knows? But we'll have to see. So keep checking the news. Okay. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Bye. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye.